0: What's up everybody, you're listening to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panel. i uh, your co-host Albert, and with us today is our other co-host. Yo, this is Drew Tan, how's it going everybody? Hey
1: there everybody, and uh, today uh, we've been able to get the rest of the crew back together, it's been a long while, so we've got our good friend Alexander Shane is here. that be me. And we also have... Longtime buddy and pal, Zach.
2: Yep. That'd Zach Hanna right here.
1: Yo, yo, Julian, yo. Zachary Hannah.
2: Julian Zachary Hanna. Julian
1: Zachary Hanna. You got to
0: say your name like a serial killer, dude. <laughs> or, so, 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 so,
2: so, so, so said true.
1: I was I was going to say he sounds like a Roman senator or something,
3: but...
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if you go by his initials, it sounds like a rapper, Nick Danica Jizza. <laughs> true true but i i would not want my rap name to be jizza that's, that's not
0: it. <laughs> yeah well, it's, already it's already taken man there's already a jizza <laughs> that's true that's right the wu-tang clan man yeah, yeah. yeah. one Wu-Tang of the greatest yeah. and there's also yeah, Rizza.
1: so for today's episode we're gonna do a little something that we did earlier in the in quarantine but we're gonna go back and revisit well not revisit but we're gonna do another quarantine reads a Quarren Reads, I guess you can call it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. This is why I get paid so much to do this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but essentially, we're just going to, you know, the, the quarantine and shelter in place has given us the opportunity to catch up on a lot of our reading, um, you know, just because we've accumulated so many comics over over our lives, really. So, We're just going to go over, uh, in this episode today, we're going to go over what we've been reading.
0: Sounds good. Sound
1: good? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's jump into it. Drew, do you want to go first?
0: Foist? Sure, man. So there's just been a bunch of stuff that I've been reading recently. So I won't go into like every single thing I've read. I'll just, you know... I assume we'll just go around and talk about random things here uh, for each of us. So I'll just start off with uh, one of the more recent things that I read. Uh, So like maybe a week or, yeah, like last week, I read this uh, graphic novel from First Second called A Map to the Sun by Sloan Leong. And that was a pretty uh, nice book about, uh, it's about these uh, teenage girls right Um, and they two of them become friends over the summer and they get along pretty well but one of them due to circumstances ends up having to move uh, away from the state and she's gone for a couple years and then uh, you know a few years later she moves back and and now they're in high school um, and things are different between them because the girl who left kind of left without you know, leaving a message or answering any calls from her friend. Uh, so it's about them readjusting their friendship, uh, being the people that they are now, and also uh, getting along with some other friends of theirs who, and all, f- all five of them, it's a group of five friends who end up joining uh, the high school basketball team together. And it, it just kind of follows their their journey of friendship and takes a look at uh yeah it's it's really about like that sisterhood and the friendship uh expressed through this uh shared interest in in basketball and uh it's really poetically done The, the artwork is i believe she colored it herself i could be wrong i'd have to grab my copy and check the credits but it's got a really interesting uh, color scheme where it's, it's very neon. It kind of reminds me of like Miami vice or something from the eighties at times, but it, it's not colored for realism. It's, it's actually colored for, for moodiness and the mm. evocative qualities uh, that the color brings out. So that that's definitely something I would recommend to you guys. It's a book that I discovered from uh, somebody that, we follow on instagram so I, I just saw someone posting some pictures of it and i was like that looks pretty unique so i checked it out from the library and read it uh pretty quickly
1: nice nice okay
0: uh so okay
1: i mean yeah, been, i was I've gonna been ask reading a you. lot of
0: library books lately since the library it's opened good. up I've, I've checked out a bunch of books again <laughs> It's
1: good. We got the time, so we might as well uh, you know, use the library as a resource,
0: right? Yeah, exactly.
1: Because honestly, there's a whole bunch of books for us to read out there, and we can't read everything, and we can't uh, own everything is, is really the more realistic thing. Like, space yeah. is limited, so... I was
3: going to say, you may have the time, but it doesn't mean you have the money.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, kids, use your local library. It's not just for a place where homeless people go to pee. <laughs> Exactly. i don't know if you know this boys and girls but there are actually books in there that you can read
3: (laughs) and use for other purposes and
0: use (laughs) and even if you don't want to go to the library you can always use the the uh digital library like hoopla or something i'm sure uh, most local libraries have partnered up with with uh sites like that that allow you to check out digital copies of stuff so i've checked out a few digital comics myself recently too yeah the library actually has
1: three different uh apps that they use uh for digital books in san francisco uh so you have hoopla you have libby and i think you have this other one called overdrive Mm -hmm. so uh you know uh if there's something that you don't see on one particular app You can always jump on one of the other apps to see if they have it there. Uh, There's been a couple of cases where uh, one of the apps doesn't have a particular uh, book that I'm looking for. And lo and behold, there it is on one of the other ones. So, you know, it's a great resource. Yeah, great way Um, to
0: try out new stuff from people that you never heard of before. You never know if you'll enjoy it. Then you know it's worth buying and owning for yourself.
1: For sure, for sure.
0: Um should we just go in
1: around and just go Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you guys th- have
0: read. Okay.
1: Uh I'll go next. I'll just go according to how our Zoom profiles are are showing up on my tablet. But uh one of the things that I I've been doing over the quarantine is uh you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh we've been collecting comics from quarter bins for years now and there's been a whole bunch of sets that I've been able to finish over the past couple of years and I've just kind of put them aside and um, you know, this has been my chance to read it and decide whether there's stuff that I want to keep or stuff that I want to get rid of just to clear up space in my house. And um, one of the things that I recently read was secret Avengers by Ailes Cott. And the art is by, uh, Matthew, uh, Michael Walsh, and the colorist is Matthew Wilson. So, um, on the, on the face of it, it's a pretty simple premise. It's, uh, it's a comic that's, The Secret Avengers is a sub-team of the Avengers that, uh, well, I guess the running thread throughout the overall run of the secret Avengers is that it's, it's kind of the espionage team of the Avengers, the espionage side of the Avengers. And uh, they've, they've had a bunch of different writers who've worked on it over the, over the, the run of the series. So I believe Nick Spencer wrote it for a while. And then Rick Remender wrote it. And uh, uh, Ed Brubaker did some Warren Ellis did some. So it's all uh, it's got a lot of, Pretty high-profile names attached to it. I don't know, like, if it was a series that did pretty well uh, relative to other comics that were selling at the time. But I do think that, from what I've read of it, that the creative teams and the creative teams alone were pretty impressive, and uh, the stories were pretty solid, from what I remember. Um, but this this particular this particular uh run by Cott and Michael Walsh I don't yeah I don't know if it got quite mm-hmm. as much attention as the other ones cuz Cott isn't nearly as big of a name. Uh he's someone who I came across reading uh really I, I the first thing of his that I read was The Winter Soldier that he did uh with uh who's the artist? I think he had a couple of artists on
0: it but I I yeah. think uh one of them was Marco Rudy
1: Marco Rudy, exactly. And, th- and there was someone well, else
0: on it. I can't remember off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, towards the end, I think there was definitely someone else on it. I forget who the artist is. Someone but- with a really cool idiosyncratic style also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it sort of reminded me of like, kind of like a Seth Fisher from what yeah. I remember. Yeah. But... um yeah, so Marco Rudy was was the primary artist on a lot of it, and his art style is just incredible. It's just this painted surreal style where you you don't really know what you're. I mean, you know what you're looking at, but like in terms of the narrative flow, it's very like dreamlike, you know? Yeah. So. So, I remember finding all of that in the quarter bins and reading that entire series, and that was just a fantastic series so Ellscott has been someone who 's been on my radar ever since and uh I have to say, his secret Avengers is it was a fun book, you know I mean I think towards the end, there are things about it that I really had to pause and think about but um yeah. Like so uh in terms of the basic premise of the story, it what he does is um he he takes his specific team of secret avengers and he makes their roster uh he really makes it a spy comic. So the roster is you have um Nick Fury Jr., not Nick Fury. Um
0: <laughs> You're also... not a fan of Nick Fury Jr., man. A, I'm not either. That was a dumb the idea. Dumb is they, yeah. they should have just brought Ultimate Nick Fury into the Marvel Universe. That would have made more sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they had to... They Like, they ended up destroying the Ultimate Universe a few months. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, um, you know, a sidebar, a tangent. Uh, when the movies came out, they made Nick Fury look like Samuel L. Jackson, and that sort of blew up. And as a result, the comic books felt like they had to do something to reconcile uh the two characters because in the marvel universe in the comics nick fury is like this you know seasoned old white guy with an eye patch uh kind of a salty old soldier type right um i i was the first thought (laughs) one of the random thoughts that came to me was uh michael hasselhoff on in his tv (laughs) his tv uh uh, tv episode David Hasselhoff, not Michael Hasselhoff, sorry. Uh, they did a made-for-TV movie where David Hasselhoff was the guy. So, But Nick Fury doesn't look anything like David Hasselhoff, as far as I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, so as a way to reconcile those two things, they um, – so in the comic books, there's a comic book version in an alternate universe that looks like uh, – samuel l jackson but in the regular universe the main universe they still just had the regular old nick fury and though the way that they decided to reconcile those two things was by telling us that nick fury actually had a long lost son that none of us knew about and he happens to look like samuel l jackson (laughs) which i mean it's a very soap opera ish trope like i don't i don't have any problem with the samuel l jackson nick fury like i i have my, uh, a you know i have my level of affection for that nick fury too but i i just don't i don't buy the idea that you know he's got this 30 or 40 year old son that was just around this whole time and we never <laughs> knew about and he happens to be a super spy too you
0: know <laughs> it's pretty silly it's yeah it's pretty hard to believe like i said i would have rather they just brought the ultimate nick fury into the 616 universe
1: (laughs) yeah and you know to continue this tangent i've i've thought about that at length and i actually think that there would have been more story potential for bringing that nick fury over to this universe because because the way that they established that nick fury in that universe he was kind of a bastard he was Uh, man like there were times where he was just at odds. Uh, like there are times where he definitely did heroic things and he had his noble moments, but due to some other writers who weren't as good, he he has a spotty history of his own. Um, I believe JMS did uh, ultimate power and he basically made Nick Fury, the villain of that story. And that's not something that was great, but you know,
0: I think that it's, was it's, uh, that might've been a, one of those stories where, it was nine issues, right? And I think three writers wrote each... I think Bendis might have been one yeah, of like, the two, right? I think it was Bendis, Loeb, and JMS.
1: Yeah. That's two-thirds not good.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that was a lost cause for Bendis before he even began.
1: Yeah. he They they tied a, a weight around his neck and then threw him into the ocean.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a question. Um, this run of, I guess... Secret Avengers and so forth. Was that around the time when the plan was in place to eventually merge the Ultimate Universe with the 616 Universe? Uh,
1: I want to say that it was a little before it because this, okay. again, we this is the point in time where we first start to see Nicholas Fury Jr. Uh, mm-hmm. assume the role of Nick Fury in the Marvel Universe. So I think prior to this He'd I, I wanna say he'd already been around for a little while. But, yeah. um,
0: but did that run I don't know your, when did, Go ahead. Did did that El run come out before or after Secret Wars?
1: I will have to check. It says here 2014. So okay, I don't that's know. before Secret Wars. Yeah, so so if they had just waited maybe a year and change, they <clears> could have <throat> just merged those two universes and brought that Nick Fury over.
3: But, oh right that's the reason why I ask is because uh, if they already had in mind that they had like a plan two in the future like we eventually want to merge the ultimate universe in there then it just feels yeah. like introducing this all of a sudden character that like you said a super spy didn't know about for 30 40 years yeah and when you merge it I don't know it if it's a dumb- character but it's like at that point yeah. it's like you need two um, of the same kind of Nick Fury at that point in the same universe yeah well if well, I was what, writing what it what happened after not to Secret go- Wars is that the universes didn't actually merge
0: only a select oh. handful of survivors from the Ultimate Universe transferred over. Sure,
3: like I know, like oh, okay. Miles Morales, Spider-Man, and yeah. I don't know how else, whatever.
1: Well, I was going to say, if I had a chance to write the Marvel comics, what I would do is I would have taken Nick Fury Jr. and I would have revealed that he was actually the Nick Fury from the alternate universe.
0: Okay. That he was Ultimate Nick Fury all along?
1: Yeah, and it was just him, like you know, being a gonna, bastard. He was being a getting spy, out of, spy. Getting out of Dodge. Universe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, like, it was established that he knew how to... that he was already kind of jumping universes or, like, spying on other universes or whatever, so...
0: But don't you think it's you funny know. that that uh, if <laughs> Ultimate Nick Fury wanted to infiltrate the 616, he would tell everybody, without changing his appearance, that he would tell everybody that he was <laughs> Nick Fury's son? <laughs>
1: I, I prefer that to, <laughs> like, I prefer that to, hey, guess what? I'm his long-lost son.
3: <laughs> well, Albert, but I'll believe you what. You yeah, know, you're right. You're right. There's always room for fan fiction. You can always write the alternate version of, of Nick Fury <laughs> Jr., like Red and Secret Avengers.
1: Yeah. Well, okay, anyways. So this version of uh, the Secret Avengers um, – for every run, they've had a different cast of characters, and this one by Scott has uh, Nick Fury, Ju- Nicholas Fury Jr. It has Hawkeye, Black Widow, Spider Woman, uh, Phil Coulson, and uh, and as their tech guy, they've got MODOK. <laughs> and I actually have a lot of affection for this team composition because I think for all of the other for most of the other, uh, um, for most of the other Secret Avengers comics or runs, they've had. I mean, they were still like spy related, but you you still had that element of superpowers. So, like, I think Nova was on one of the teams, and um, yeah, like the original you know,
0: Secret Avengers had Nova, uh, War Machine, Valkyrie. So they had some yeah. pretty high. Powered, uh, heavy hitters.
1: Individuals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But this 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 particular team really felt like it was a team of spies, you know? Uh, they were pretty... Uh, except for Spider-Woman, I'd say they were all pretty well-grounded. Okay, Spider-Woman and MODOK, but MODOK wasn't really like a fighter or whatever. Even Spider-Woman just, has
0: a background in comics as a super spy, though. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. She, I think she yeah. was
1: working for S.H.I.E.L.D. for a while. But, you're talking about... Yeah, totally.
0: uh, the original Jessica Drew, Spider-Man, right? Yeah, Jessica Drew. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, it's it's a story where. Um, so first of all, I want to go over the tone of the comic, and it's the way that Ailescott writes is, at least for this comic, it's I don't know how else to describe it, but pretty whimsical, and uh, I'd even go as far as to say lighthearted. It's not something that uh, takes the super spy genre and makes it you know, hard-hitting and gritty or anything like that. I mean, there's definitely stakes involved in the comic itself, but uh, in terms of the interactions between the characters, that's probably one of the things that I found most enjoyable, just the way that you know, Hawkeye banters with uh, Black Widow and Spider-Woman Oh, yeah, and another character that's on the team is Maria Hill, and she's essentially their handler. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really fun team of uh, characters that are riffing off each other. And, um, and you know, the comic itself even has some self-awareness, and it goes over, like, it, it acknowledges what other comics are around at the time. So there's even one scene when I was reading it where... Uh, I don't know if any of you guys hate this sort of thing, but there is a bit of a fourth wall break. And uh I from what I remember, I wanna say the narrator interacts with one of the characters in the book. And essentially the the narrator of the story says, you know, something to the effect of I'm just trying to copy I'm just trying to imitate what Fraction and Aha are doing on Hawkeye. <laughs> but a little worse you know <laughs> nice so it, it was a pretty fun little like wink and a nod to like what was going on at the time um yeah and so uh, the seri- the series actually starts off kind of slow and it's it starts off with this uh just a series of seemingly random events right and it just feels like S.H.I.E.L.D. and the various members of the Secret Avengers team are under attack or under threat, and they don't really know what's going on. But the Secret Avengers team's team has been able to foil all of the plots, but they just know that something's after them. And this is a bit of a spoiler, but by the time you get to around the middle of the series, the revelation is that you know, MODOK, who, who is their man in the lab, who is also a, a, of, at the time, a former supervillain that has been, uh, recruited to, to work for S.H.I.E.L.D. MODOK was actually the one, you know, surprisingly enough, (laughs) plotting (laughs) against the Secret Avengers. But here's the double twist. The reason that all his plots failed. So, MODOK's plan initially was that he was going to, uh, set off all a chain of events in all these attacks that would result in Maria Hill getting fired and Modoc being put in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D. That was his plan all along. But then the double twist in the middle of the series and spoilers is that Modoc was the one who ultimately ended up foiling all of the plans because he's found that over time he, he's fallen in love with Maria Hill.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's no longer a mental organism designed only for killing he's a mental organism designed only for kissing
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a fun series and michael walsh's art is um is very realistic and uh it's got these really thick lines but i i love just how much like dense and substance he gives to everything it's 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 a really fun comic um i'd say towards the end of the series there are some things some ideas that sort of lose me he Scott is the kind of writer who tends to i think he's someone who's younger than me and uh you can tell that he grew up influenced by guys like grant morrison and uh alan moore you know just uh, probably some warren ellis just these really like far out there um, comics creators, you know, and this guy is a dude who's, I want to say he's in his early thirties, if not his late twenties, you know, Mm -hmm. but um, from what I've seen, like some of his more out there comics really tend to mimic um, those kinds of uh, concepts, those, those uh, really far out there concepts. And I would say that, throughout most of secret avengers it's pretty straightforward but towards the end he starts getting into some big science and big philosophical ideas and it does lose me for a little bit and and i don't mean it loses my interest i just mean it loses my capacity to understand what he's necessarily saying yeah but it's something where i did want to keep it to reread again just to try to understand what he was saying um it was interesting cuz towards the end of the series or once the series ended he did have a letters a letter to the the people that he was um to to his readers and what he was saying was that the comic and the story of In Secret Avengers was a chance for him to work out a lot of like angst and feelings that he had developed in his younger years and you know high school and you know uh, maybe college, I'm, I'm not, I, I want to say it was high school, I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but he, he essentially says that he He dealt with a lot of bullying in, in high school, and this story was something that allowed him to work out his feelings on being bullied, which is kind of interesting, like, I'm, I'm I had a difficult time trying to make that connection but it's definitely something where now that I know that that's what he had in mind at some point I want to reread it to see if I can fully understand what he was where he was coming from when he wrote the this particular story so uh secret Avengers by uh, Scott and michael walsh that's that's my recommend uh that that was what
0: I've been reading in uh quarantine was uh were the secret Avengers beating up bullies or something or what what was the connection there <sighs> Um, I don't think they were beating up bullies. Well, that's
1: that's the thing. Like, I'm really trying to understand, w- when I was reading it, I was really trying to understand, especially after the fact, after reading that letter, I was trying to understand what the connection was, and I guess the one thing that I could say is, if you look at Modoc as the character in the story, as a stand-in for Alescott, oh. maybe... Maybe there's, like, something to say there about, like, rejection, you know? That's, a, that's about interesting. Being, about being rejected by your peers. But, yeah. Like, now that I'm talking to you about it, th- like, that's the one thing I might be able to to pull from it is... And, and this might be me grasping at straws, but uh, Modoc might be the point of view character for him personally in the story. So, and... So for those of you who don't know who M.O.D.O.K. is, uh, M.O.D.O.K. is basically an evil super genius who's pretty deformed and gross to look at. He's he's essentially a giant head with little arms and legs coming from his giant head, and he has this apparatus that allows him to move, but he's not, you know, a good-looking dude. He's not a dude that's, like, physical. Fizzle- physically imposing you know all he really has is his
0: brain um, Did you know that there's a modok animated series that's supposed to come out this year yeah like i i remember hearing about that and
1: i'm kind of interested in that like over the years i don't i think when i first found out about modok i didn't have really too much interest in him as a character i thought he was kind of corny or whatever but i will say over the years he's someone that I've
0: developed a little affection for he's, you know. He's pretty zany. He's, it's it'd be hard to yeah. imagine uh, a serious live action version of him, but he works in the comics. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like he works as a cartoon as a zany character, right? Like yeah, he could be like Brain in Pinky and the Brain or something like that.
0: In the cartoon, uh, Patton Oswalt is gonna do his voice. Even better. I'm in. I'm in for yeah. that, man. I'm, I totally dig that. And yeah. I would say
1: that um, the way that Ailescott writes him in the uh, secret event. Avengers...
3: I think Albert might have gotten disconnected. I was
0: on the edge of my seat trying to grasp what he was saying too. So the, the weird that michael walsh draws the art is
1: like it's not but
0: <laughs> hello oh boy right. okay
1: I, I hear you okay. now yeah sorry i think i froze for a second there yeah for but, a while. yeah uh i was gonna say that um michael walsh's art is uh pretty realistic but he's able to capture the zaniness in Alescott's script. So it's, it's uh, yeah, uh, like I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good run, you know? Uh, it's something that I'm going to hold on to, something I'm going to try to reread again, maybe like a, a year or two down the road just to see if I can process further uh, what is being said.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah,
2: yeah. you know, just for that Modoc plot twist... That kind of makes me want to read it. Like, if for no other reason than that, and the rest of the story sounds good, sounds interesting. But for that plot twist, one, I would want to read it, and uh, two, actually, for the stuff that I've been reading, I think I might actually have kind of a comparison in terms of zaniness for that. So, just just remind me about that later on. Um, you know, when it when it comes around to me. But it was kind of funny when you start talking about, you know, he's just this big. Essentially, head with like little arms and and legs sort of popping. <laughs> out. That's that's a really good description of him, especially like yeah. about it, like artistically, like how you would draw that. It, you can't draw that with a straight face. Like it's just it's got to be fun when you draw it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: I I will say that there's a way that you can do him as like a, a like a horror character or something. He could be kind of like you guys remember Quato from Total, Total
2: Recall. <laughs> Uh, vaguely it's been a really long time since i've seen total recall though I is he that more. little guy inside a big body
1: yeah he's he's like he's basically like a siamese twin uh that's grown out of a dude's stomach okay <laughs> <laughs> I, I it's think really I gross yeah yeah it's really gross but like you know you can you can do Modoc
0: as as a as a really gross like horror character too i think that's there's a true. way to do it if they did a modok uh, in the live action marvel cinematic universe he would have, He'd to, have be to be disgusting. disgusting yeah
2: yeah absolutely yeah that's true that's true I, I don't think i'd really want to see that but it is true <laughs> i want to watch yeah. you see that <laughs> <laughs> We, we
0: uh, go to the movie theater. I'm just gonna be watching Zach's. You're just face. gonna turn, yeah, turn gonna to turn him at, and turn just
1: to sit Zach. there, <laughs> watching him the whole time. Exactly. like
2: me uncontrollably recoil in disgust, like yeah. gagging on my snack. Yeah, it's not good. I just hear
1: you retching from the <laughs> from the side. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Shouldn't have ordered extra butter on the popcorn.
1: <laughs> Why did I order foie gras at this movie theater? <laughs> Why did like, I decide to go for the lobster tail? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm like, hey, Drew, we're going to have to leave early, man. I don't think I can make it. I don't think I can do this. <laughs> so All right. What about you, Zach? What have you, what have you read lately? Uh, for me, I've been... I've actually been reading a lot of stuff, some of which is not comics, but uh, the comic stuff I've been enjoying. Um, I pulled some of that old uh, Jack Kirby stuff out. So uh, Mr. Miracle... And uh, New Gods. Nice. Fourth uh, World stuff. Classic. Yeah, yeah. So I've been slowly making my way through that. Um, And then some manga as well. There's this manga that I read called uh, Black Clover. So trying to get caught up on that. It's been kind of cool. But yeah, mostly, I think mostly what I wanted to talk about this time is uh, Kirby stuff because there's, you know, it's so dense and there's so much stuff there. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, Mr. Miracle for um, people who don't know. And this is going to be kind of tough to summarize because the both of these are like really jam-packed like super epic works uh of kirby's he's like building this whole essentially building whole worlds building whole universes um so think of it like you know the odyssey or the iliad or something but it's it's kirby's version of it so um mr miracle uh is essentially this the story of like this guy who's an escape artist and how he, he comes to be, but of course it's Kirby's version of an escape artist. So, you know, he starts off on, on this world called uh, Apocalypse and then um, there's stuff in there that kind of ties back to New Genesis. There's kind of a duality between uh, Apocalypse and New Genesis. Apocalypse is like the hell type world and New Genesis is more like, I don't know, like Eden or heaven or like kind of a utopian kind of world. Um, there's an interplay between the two. And of course, somewhere in between all that is Earth. And then, you know, there's things that happen there. But I think that's in New Gods. So I'm describing them both because they actually both sort of tie in at one point. But Mr. Miracle, back to Mr. Miracle, his actual name, uh, get this, is Scott Free. And uh, Kirby himself makes kind of a joke about it in the comics. So it's kind of a running joke that that's the name that he took for himself. Uh, the original Mr. Miracle before Scott Free uh, was actually the one who taught him, you know, how to do his tricks and escape arts and stuff like that, like on on actual earth. Um, But he assumed that mantle and uh, became Mr. Miracle. And so this is the story of like all the exploits and all the stuff that he's been going through, like going between worlds. So there's like this world and then there's Um, apocalypse. And then there's, you know, the tie-ins to all the things that happened in his past and uh, all the technology and stuff that he brought here from there. Um, And then there's all these different characters that kind of pop in and out of the story as well. Um, And if you know anything about, about Jack Kirby, it's kind of, it's really fun for me because as a creator, I'm thinking about him sitting here, you know, thinking up all these characters and drawing it out and he's got the the worlds and the technology and the tanks and the weapons and all this different stuff so um it's just it's a really fun kind of I don't know like kind of a ride or kind of a romp through like all these different adventures and misadventures uh Mr. Miracle goes on um so the fourth world stuff as far as I can remember, I don't remember all the details. I think Drew or probably Shannon can speak to it a little bit better than I could. Um, but I think he broke from Marvel, right, sometime in the 70s or something to kind of work on his own stuff, correct?
0: Yeah, he was basically uh, tired of Stan Lee for a while, I think. And DC offered him a lot of money, or I don't know if it was a lot of money, but they offered him a deal to do their books and he could create his own kind of his own new stuff. So he went over to DC in the seventies and, and did the, the fourth world series.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that's really enjoyable about that, I was going to say is, um, and thanks for that too, by the way, Drew. Um, but I was going to say it's, it's kind of like um, raw, like unedited Kirby, like it's completely mm-hmm. him coming up with the stuff and the stories that he wanted to tell. Uh, So this stuff, I mean, most of Kirby's stuff um, before that had been for Marvel. And that was actually, you know, I read a lot of that stuff growing up, which is like, you know, the, your Fantastic Four and, uh, you know, Doctor Doom and like all these, these characters and stuff that he would come up with. So that's where I knew Kirby from. And Drew and I were talking a while back and he's like, oh, you know, he did DC stuff too. And I was like, what? Like Kirby on DC? Like, when did this happen? But when he went over to DC, this is this was like him. This was his chance to tell his stories uh, and come up with his own mythology. So Mr. Miracle uh, is a part of that. And uh, New Gods is also another big part of that. So New Gods is like, I don't know, the closest thing I can think of to describe it is if you think of, quote unquote, like the Pantheon for Marvel, you know, like Thor and and... Um, you, all the people in in Thor's region, <laughs> you know, where he lives. The Norse uh, gods and all that? Yeah, Norse mythology and stuff like that. Um, and think about how that relates to the Marvel Universe. This is kind of, in a sense, like a, a DC equivalent. And I don't mean that in a way to say, like, it's a direct one-to-one equivalent. But what I mean is he's developing this mythology and this pantheon that becomes integral uh, later on to the DC Universe. yeah. Um, so, in New Gods, you got characters like Calibac, <coughs> like uh, Black Racer. Um, there's a couple other characters, honestly, like I had never seen before or never seen since. There's like Fastback or something like that. And yeah, then... Slig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Slig. <it's> Slig's <laughs> actually one of my favorites. He's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, a bunch of stuff that like. Can I forget my... about
0: Orion, the main oh, dude?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah Orion. Um, like Dark Side. I don't know if he is that his first appearance or just one of his earliest appearances in new gods
0: uh
2: i actually think
0: his first appearance in a comic book was one of jack kirby's jimmy olsen issues okay because because when jack kirby went to dc he he did four books and they all he was doing them all at the same time which is crazy so they gave him jimmy olsen they uh also allowed him to start mr miracle the new gods and the forever people so like he was doing all four of those at the same time drawing and writing
2: can you believe wait, that well hold on hold on yeah, at, at the same time at the same time <laughs> <laughs> jimmy isn't that ridiculous is the first appearance
1: of dark Side. that's a key issue kids <laughs> <laughs> it really
0: is i mean it's old enough to actually be worth something
1: oh yeah i bet it's worth something for sure but we ain't those kind of people
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so so, so zach you're... you oh sorry I was going to ask.
2: Go ahead, Albert. Go ahead.
1: Oh, uh, I was going to ask. You You said that there was like a connection to like zaniness. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm kind of curious what you were trying to, like what, what the connection may have been.
2: Yeah. So in one of the chapters of Mr. Miracle, I'm actually like sitting here flipping through it, trying to find the exact uh, page number or whatever right now. But uh, yeah. he one of the last villains that he has to fight uh is this guy who you know like most of the other villains in the book tries to trap him in a trap that he can't get out of and kill him and that's the whole game Uh either you're gonna escape or you're gonna die so this guy's name though creatively enough is the head and it's literally just a giant head (laughs) in a in a box that's on like at one point i think it's on wheels but then at another point it starts flying around or something. (laughs) <laughs> His weapon is like he calls them brainwaves, and so it's like this sort of like telekinetic oh. attack type thing. But, like, it's just again, in terms of zaniness, it's crazy and it looks goofy and it's funny to read, but you know, it's just like par for the course with all the other kind of weird stuff that's going on.
1: That's uh, that is pretty funny. <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah it is uh it's around page like 224 225 it's uh i'm trying to look for the name of the actual issue i guess the the issue is called mr miracle to be but it's part of that whole the whole um you know progression of issues that are in in that larger uh, mythos so
0: yeah actually one thing i wanted to mention was how the i think it's the first issue Of the new gods but it it tells you like the origin of of how they came to be and it it starts off with this I forget the exact wording but basically you see this uh the aftermath of a of a cataclysm or a a Ragnarok and it says there came a day when the old gods died and new gods came to take their place or something like that and it, it basically looks like Kirby is killing off Thor and all the Asgardians and all those characters that he developed at Marvel, and now there's something better to take their place. <laughs> I always thought that was a fun way to, to
2: begin, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely I definitely caught that. I picked up on that, and it made me chuckle when I read it. Um, yeah. There's, there's so much, though, man. There's so much to love in here. And I think, to me, one of the things that stands out the most um, Well, for one, is the characters. For two, I guess, is the art, because obviously I'm a huge, huge Kirby fan. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back to what you were saying earlier, Drew, about him working on all these things uh, at the same time, that blows me away. Like, as an artist, that absolutely blows me away. Given, um, at the time, uh, as far as I know, like Jack was, he was the writer, but he was also the penciler, too. Yeah. Um, And for anyone who doesn't know, usually... Well, actually, I'll, I'll go back to like in those times, like the way that usually comics were made was there. It's kind of a, a production pipeline. There'd be a penciler, an ink, an inker, a colorist, uh, a letterer, you know, there's like a whole team of people. You pass it on down the line, uh, it goes into production and it gets printed out. So that same process sort of holds true today. Obviously, with digital stuff, there's been uh, a lot of changes and a lot of uh modifications to how that pipeline works, but the same basic structure is still kind of there. But for Kirby to be prolific enough that he's drawing all these things at the same time and getting them out in a timely fashion, even to draw a single page, like I'm finishing up a book for a client now, even to draw a single page nowadays, you know, you can spend a day drawing a page or like, you know, a couple of days, three days drawing a page. If you turn out I don't know four or five pages a week or something that's pretty good but to be able to you'd have to be doing multiple pages like almost multiple pages a day to be able, and that's that's ridiculous like thinking about that kind of of speed with the consistency and the quality that Kirby has is just it's insane I mean you can you could probably do it digitally just because there's tricks and stuff that you can do but this is just one dude sitting at his drawing table coming up with all this. Like some people are, are just gifted and and Kirby had it. So, you know, when we talk mm-hmm. about appreciating his work and appreciating the quality of it, um, but also just the the prolific nature of the artist himself, how he can just buckle down and you'd have to be at your table for 10, 14, 16 hours a day to be cranking out stuff that that he did like that with, uh, the amount of quality, the amount of detail that you see, it's just, it blows my mind. Like even now, there's, there's creators out there who can't touch um, the kind of stuff that Kirby did in, in the time that he did it. Like if you're holding Mr. Miracle or like uh, New Gods, like the Collected Edition, and those things are like, I don't know, like an inch thick. Like it's not a small amount of work that he's done. It's like a pretty fat couple of books there. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's just it's really impressive. It's really impressive.
0: He must have had a whole ton of passion doing those books, man, because that I imagine that love for what he was doing was what was driving just the manic pace of his output, because that's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. like he that's, must have really he was loved, a
1: freak of nature he
0: must have really loved what he was making man that that's the only thing i can imagine it's like no matter how much money he was getting paid like i'm sure that he had so much of himself that was in those stories because from from like I, i've read all his fourth world stuff uh a couple times and like the thing that stands out to me is is that for a, a series that has so many cosmic ideas and uh you know it's intended to be cosmic and there's all these really i guess science fictiony superheroish ideas and concepts just thrown in into every single issue like just you're you're just blasted in the face with new ideas and concepts all the time to the point where it's a frenetic pace and as the reader you you almost can't keep up because there's just so much happening for something like that it's actually a really it feels like a really personal work from him you know like it it actually feels like this is Kirby presenting his uh I want to maybe I'll even say his worldview you know like this is this is like a gigantic metaphor for how he views the world and and humanity and how how people should treat one another. And he's just presenting it in this like bombastic science opera kind of fashion.
2: Yeah, It's like a lot
0: of heart, you know, like a a lot of like stuff that he obviously cared about.
2: Yeah, and I think it bears mentioning, um, I think he was like, by the time he started uh, working on these things and as I've just found out all at the same time, he was in his 50s like he, he wasn't that young anymore so it's like that that even stacks another layer onto like how impressive that amount of work is at that quality and yeah I think I think I agree with you Drew like this isn't the it's definitely not the work of someone who is reluctant to do it it feels almost like you know he jumped over for a marvel and he's like hey I've got this one shot. I've got this one little window to be able to do my stuff the way I've always wanted to do it. And I better nail this. I'm just going to like knock it out of the park as best I can. Every single page is going to be like, and that's how it feels. It's just like bursting with, with dynamism and energy and just all this, like craziness, everything he could pack into that. he, He put into it. Um, so yeah, man, um, definitely enjoyed that. Highly, highly recommend, uh, anyone to be able to read like Mr. Miracle or new gods or any of the fourth world stuff. I haven't made my way through uh, the entire fourth world saga yet. I've done those two. So I'm probably going to check out the the next two. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I'm I'm leaving out here. There's, I mean, there's a lot, man, like the, the mother box and the arrow discs and the crazy technology and the boom Tubes and yeah, yeah. The boom tubes. That's the other thing I meant to kind of bring up. I'm not sure. I actually wanted to ask you about this, Drew. Um, I'm not sure how exactly the mythology that's established here ties into the DC universe going forward. Because growing up, like I was mostly a Marvel kid, so I didn't read a lot of DC. But it's just like if we're going to talk, you know, boom tubes and mother boxes and apocalypse and new Genesis. So I'm reading, this is the start of all that. And then... What happens after that? Like, how does it develop to, I guess, where DC kind of is today, or how does it tie in? That's what I'm asking. So, New Genesis and
0: Apocalypse, they're, they, I don't. If you gave me an Interstellar star chart, I wouldn't know where they were. Like, I wouldn't be able to point them out to you. But they, they exist in the same plane as the rest of the DC universe. Uh, but for the most part like the Green Lantern Corps, no better than to go there, you know, like they don't, they don't go to Apocalypse. They're not, you know, it's like, <laughs> it
1: sounds like Apocalypse is the bad neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's, it's is, the, there, it's is the other side of the tracks. You don't go down
0: there. <laughs> Actually, one thing I, I read um, earlier in the quarantine back in like, I don't know, May or something. Uh, I read Walter Simonson's Orion series from the early 2000s and he actually did include a there was a, a subplot about a Green Lantern on Apocalypse and that was some pretty moving stuff man he was basically this guy who, who was abandoned there um, and the Green Lantern Corps wasn't allowed to go there so they couldn't rescue him and like he was living there for like years and years so his ring was like extremely low on charge and he He couldn't do Jack because, I mean, if he did, then, you know, he would be using up the last of his powers and he was just living among the dregs. Cause if you guys have uh, read any comics with apocalypse in them, or if you've seen, if you remember the old nineties Superman cartoon and the way that they depicted apocalypse in the show, like that was pretty much the kind of squalor that he was living in, you know, like all the, all the normal citizens of apocalypse, they're, they're basically just slaves that work in the factories, slaving away for dark side. They have no will of their own. And even if they wanted to do stuff, they would get punished pretty easily. So this Green Lantern with extremely low power in his ring, he was just living in there with the people, like trying to do what he could, but it was just a hopeless cause. And and like, that was kind of the point of it. It was like, a, apocalypse is where hope goes to die, you know, and, and even... A Green Lantern who who wasn't he wasn't even a guy who was giving up he was like doing his best and giving it his all but it was all f- for not you know like that was that was the thing the thing about that that makes me laugh is
1: when you when I think of apocalypse it's like all the citizens of apocalypse they just slave away like you know I don't know how many hours in a day they just work and slave away doing what they do but I don't even know what it is that they're actually producing, like I feel like the like their general output is just misery, you know, yeah, <laughs> like they just push a wheel and it really doesn't do anything except just make them exert all of their energy and be miserable, and that in and it of itself is the value of pushing the wheel, like it doesn't crush grain, it doesn't make you know weapons, it's just
0: <laughs> you know <laughs> dark side feels good when people suffer, man, yeah. That's what like it's me. there for. That's what they do, man. <laughs> that, that's, what's, like, that's what's so interesting about Darkseid. That, that's why I think he's yeah. one of the best villains, man. It's a giant factory that produces nothing but misery. <laughs> yep. Misery, pain, <laughs> suffering, despair, <laughs> hopelessness.
1: Yes. It's, I, it's I would just be one of rain. the people on the planet that just be
0: like what is this for why is this a thing (laughs) see those people are so beaten down they don't they can't even ask those questions anymore man because that's all they know yeah yeah that's true and and that that green lantern that last green lantern on apocalypse he was the one who was trying to get the people to to see that that it wasn't normal
1: yeah but uh like one of my favorite um dark side stories is it's basically the end of the Superman, the animated series, the like the final episode. And it's just Superman going to Apocalypse to like get revenge because, you know, Darkseid has been messing with him this whole time and he just put finally pushed him far enough. Mm-hmm. Superman goes there and he basically just beats the crap out of uh Darkseid. They just have this epic fight between the two of them. And, you know, Superman, he's all messed up and he finally beats Darkseid. And he throws Darkseid to the people, and he's just like, "There he is! I've beaten him. Do what you will to him." And all the slaves on Apocalypse they come over, and you think that they're go- they're gonna like tear Darkseid apart, but they pick him up, and they're just like, "Here, master, let us help you up. Here, let us take you to you know the infirmary or whatever." Like they're basically just there to take care of him. Mm-hmm. And you know, as they're walking away, Darkseid stops for a moment just to turn a Superman and I forget what he exactly says, but it's something to the effect of I'm many, it's something like I'm many things, but you know, to them I am their God or something like that. You know, Uh, the idea being that like, you see, even if you beat me, like uh, at the end of the day, they'll still worship me. They'll still, uh, you know, place me in reverence. So it's, it's almost like, there's nothing that you can do. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that's you know, that's absolutely the point of Darkseid.
2: Yeah, it's it's really chilling. And that's one of the, like Drew was saying, it's one of the most chilling things about the character to me, because there's such real world parallels there where, you know, you you get into situations where it's almost like this this trauma-based conditioning where you do break people and they do psychologically break down like that. To where they wind up, you know, loving their captor and, and wanting to kind of run after him and, and serve him like you would see stuff like that in dictatorships and in, you know, brutality and in kind of the inhumanity to, to different people. Um, so, you know, it, there's a lot of those illusions in Kirby's work actually are kind of subtle, but not that subtle, like definitely you can see some pretty obvious illusions to <clears> him. <throat>
3: I also just want to go back to, like, I think what Albert was saying is that uh, aside from external people who get captured on, you know, on Apocalypse, whoever else is there, that's all they've known their entire lives. And even though they probably don't like it being beaten and so forth, if that's all they know and that's the person who kind of, quote-unquote, protects them from the outside threats, then, then they're indoctrinated to believe that that this person is, is kind of their savior. And a far cry, you know, think about like um, the, the uh, royalty aspect of what dominated a lot of Europe, you know, prior to like the 1800s is that a lot of the kingships, they didn't really care about their people. Like they squandered money left and right on their personal fancies because they were the rulers. And yet the people still, you know, proclaimed love for the leadership, you know, up until influences like um, ideas of democracies and people c- and people controlling their own lives came through in the 1700s. Mm. For the longest time, like, you could be living in scholar and yet you would defend your your kings and queens to death, you know? And we look back on that and we're like scratching hands, like, why don't you want to have autonomy and like self-control over your own future and be and have the freedom to kind of move through a different class and and i felt like a lot of that was is like you should look at Darkseid. and he's kind of that same like figure for them is that he you know kind of provides them the existence they have and that's all they know that's all they can see and also from their perspective like even though Superman beat up Darkseid, superman is an invader onto the planet So how are they to know that Superman is better than Darkseid just because he beat up Darkseid?
1: (laughs) Well, I'd also add... I'd also add, you know, as another layer of context, but I think if we're to look at a broader um, worldview, like, you might even say that even if it's not Superman, even if they topple Darkseid and they're left to their own vices to rule themselves there might even be an argument to be made that who's to say that even them ruling themselves is that much better. Right. Like I'm pro-democracy like as a concept, but I think there's more than enough examples of what happens in a power vacuum. And, you know, when, when dark side is gone, uh, like, I could definitely foresee a, a type of world where whatever fills his place could be that much worse even if it is uh them right so right like he like dark side has a bunch of generals like i've seen my fair share of stories where uh you know they where their representation isn't particularly great and i have maybe even less less faith in his generals ability to run the place and less faith that they're not going to be at war with one another tearing apocalypse and into even tinier pieces and ruining that much more lives so that's who knows basically what man.
0: happens when dark side is not around
1: yeah it's it's the weird catch 22 of Darkseid, right
2: <laughs> well actually i think that's another one of the strongest points of, of the character. I think actually uh, Drew and I were having this discussion earlier this week um, uh-huh. about in, in even a broader context than that, because you guys are all right. I mean, even even if he's removed from the equation, but that's kind of the, yeah. terror of the character because he's all about breaking people's minds. Like he breaks people down, he breaks people. It's not just about the oppression yeah. that's there. Um, that's the yeah. external thing. But even if you remove him, then sort of that seed that he's sown mentally um, still perpetuates. It's still there. The people are brainwashed, if you will, even to try and open a free dialogue and have a debate. No one's debating, should we have democracy or not in Darkseid's kingdom? Like if if you utter an idea like that, you're gone. You're going to get crushed. Like your freedom of thought is not even allowed. His whole drive is to find like the anti-life equation, right? Like he wants complete control. And the removal of choice, like he doesn't, anything that allows people to choose um, freedom for themselves or choose anything but him as their God is like anathema to him. So yeah, his whole drive is about the removal of, of choice and the removal of free thought, the removal of freedom completely from anyone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of look at how that plays out. just in the comics and in the different characters. But yeah, it's definitely, again, not a not so subtle commentary on, (laughs) on things Mm -hmm, that have actually transpired in history.
1: It actually reminds me of like one other like story, uh, which is, it reminds me of Kingdom Come. Like, I, I think we've talked about it on this podcast a little bit here and there, but one of the, so Kingdom Come takes place in the future of the DC universe and one of the things that we see in the future, we, we go to a future version of Apocalypse and it's still this squalid hellhole. And, you know, uh, I forget who it was, but they go to, to Darkseid or who, who they think is Darkseid and they only see him in, uh, in silhouette. But when he turns, it turns out it's Orion and he's having this discussion with, I forget who he's talking to, but he essentially says that him killing Darkseid was this curse because you know Apocalypse ended up going into disarray and there just ended up being worse disorder and the curse for Orion was that ultimately he had to assume the role of Darkseid in order to restore order so they were like so broken that even without Darkseid they needed some presence like Darkseid and it ended up becoming a prison for Orion and he ended up being forced to become the father that he hated Mm -hmm. it's
2: pretty crazy <laughs> wow yeah that's powerful
4: yeah.
2: i mean yeah. that particular that that's a brilliant piece of work by the way i mean i kind of yeah. wish i had gone back to that and like read it before so i could talk about it now but yeah that's man that's one of my favorites and yeah you're kingdom right come was, is awesome dude yeah kingdom come is ridiculously awesome um but yeah that was a really powerful moment that stuck with me too i remember that when i read it
0: Say what you will about Darkseid as a cosmic tyrant, but at least he made the trains run on time.
1: (laughs) Uh... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What have you been reading, Um. Let's
3: see. I recently read um, Plutona by Jeff Lemire and The Bounce by Joe Casey um awesome as well as um brew baker and phillip's pulp like those are the things i read i would say in the past two months um i guess i'll talk about plutona um just because i feel like i feel like the pulp might get its own like special thing in the future uh so plutona is um so i, I discussed this over text with drew uh, maybe a few weeks ago, when I finished reading it, uh, and it it resembles a lot in flavor to Powers by Bennis Noming in the sense that there's this world that has superpower people in it, but the focus isn't necessarily on the superpowered people, but more so the consequences and what's happening around them um, to the people around them. And it revolves around a group of kids. Um, I can't. I forget what if they're in high school or if they're. In, I think they're in middle school, maybe early high school, or it's like a blended school because one of the girls has her younger brother also going to the same school. So it's it's not clear if it's like a to two eight or K <clears> twelve <throat> kind of school thing. But uh, what happens is you have this varying set of kids. One's kind of like this. Like he tries to be like. Um, a jerk because his home life is really terrible, but he's not really a jerk, but he just like plays it off to like, hide the abuse he's going through. Like the, 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 the stereotypical, I think, um, conveyance of kids who are in rough households kind of take on this hardened attitude, but are just looking for help themselves. And the rest are like just usual kids. One has a really good friend, but she's awful to her friend. Um, in terms of like borrowing things and not giving them back and so forth like that, and one just kind of self infatuated it's it's kind of a funny motley group of people so at some point they're like walking um back from school and they come across a body of a down superpowered person, and they check the body and she's cold she's clearly dead but they don't know what to do because they're afraid of telling anybody what they found. They're afraid they might get in trouble themselves. So they make a pact to not tell anybody about anything. And they go home. Of course, there's one kid who's just like a superhero fanboy, superpowered, like he follows like the chronicles of their adventures and so forth, and he recognizes who the superpowered person is. And for And for all intents and purposes, he's like the calm voice of the group. He seems the most rational. But you realize that he's had this obsession over superpowered people and he wants to be superpowered. And so he's convinced that if he can somehow transfer the blood from this superpowered person into himself, he could get these powers. And so the story revolves around um, his plot to kind of do that and how he gets caught by the younger brother of one of the girls he's in the group and so he lets him join in on that just to keep the secret and it's it's an interesting commentary on the idea of self-harm in with due to an assertion of something that really doesn't make any sense but but for that person it's it's the world to them it's also a, like i wouldn't call it a coming of age story because that really coming of age but it is just a fun, like, like view into what are the, like, real consequences of people who don't have power, especially kids, surrounded by and influenced by that which is powerful around them. Like, doesn't that make you desire to have that kind of power, too? Doesn't that make you want to be like them, like your your heroes? Like, um, but it, it it, I don't know, it just... I liked it just because you feel free to the characters. You feel for what they're going through and you understand them even when they're being um, kind of jerks to each other or behaving in ways that you like, you want to slap them around and teach them some lessons as kids. Not that I encourage slapping kids around. That's not always the greatest thing to do. But <laughs> you sure about that? I'm, I'm <laughs> pretty sure. I'm pretty sure.
1: Man, me and you have very diametrically opposed to philosophical views on the subject. <laughs> uh, my my personal philosophy is you should slap as many kids around as you can because you're only going to be bigger than them for so long. <laughs> you
2: That's need to get
1: point. your money's worth.
3: Well, well, Albert, what about talking around old people? That too. That too. <laughs> There's always so much time before you go. You need to, to get as around.
1: much slapping of powerless, weaker people than you as much as you can because someday you will be old and vulnerable and <laughs> unable to claim what was rightfully yours. Okay. Um, how about slapping women? <laughs> sure.
4: <laughs> <laughs> if you can find one
1: right that's, <laughs> that's weaker than you. If I could find one that was weaker than me, by all means.
3: <laughs> I'm laughing not because it's important to me. I'm laughing because of the absurdity of the statements. Just be clear.
2: Uh, Albert, you, you forgot one small little detail, though. Um, What's that? Sometimes, every now and then, when you slap old people, they might slap back and you might not be ready. Like that's true. Some of them, some of them are not that weak, man. I mean,
3: technically speaking, if you're slapping them, the that moment they're technically slapping him back with the part of the body that he slapped them <laughs> on. Okay, okay, okay. Let
1: me let me uh, make an adjustment to to my personal philosophy. Don't slap old people. You're allowed <laughs> to slap people who are in comas, the comatose. <laughs> you can slap the comatose.
3: Oh, because you're trying to wake him up. I get it. Okay, that's good to know.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. That's what that is.
3: <laughs> well, anyhow, there actually is quite a bit of slapping in this in this comic book. <laughs> he slapping just comes into the hospital every weekend,
1: and he makes his rounds, just slapping coma patients. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Flap man. You don't know where he's going to be. You know when he's coming, but you're guaranteed to get slapped across the face. <laughs> It's that's
1: an interesting take on Plutona, man. I mean, I was when I read it, it f- like the thing that probably struck me the most about it was that it's it felt like it started off as this this story about bright-eyed optimistic kids and, you know, hopefulness, but it's actually pretty chilling once you get towards the end. You know, there's it takes a pretty dark turn, from what do I they, remember. They, they weren't
3: all bright-eyed and cheery.
1: Well, okay, so I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, but it, for me, it's something that reminds me. It it, it harkens back to stories like, um, like '80s kids movies, you know, about like plucky underdog kids. So you know, you have your mighty ducks or your uh, some. Did you say Breakfast Club?
3: Yeah, I, I think I compared to kids in the Breakfast Club, like
1: yeah, Breakfast Club counts. Things. I was gonna say Goonies, mm-hmm. uh, Monsters, Monster Squad. So you know, it, it takes the premise of these kids that are, you know, and there's also you're right. There's there's a bunch of different tropes of the types of kids that are in their little group in their little gang. So there's always it always feels like there's this one troubled kid, and it ends up being the kid with the heart of gold, right? <clears throat> but you know over the course of those stories it's about how they build these bonds over the course of like whatever adventure that they're going through and ultimately they come out on the other end uh closer than they did going into this into the story and kind of being victorious but with plutona it's kind of the the inverse of that in that you have this group of kids and you know, the, you have all the various different tropes of kids, and they go into this uh, adventure. And, and I don't want to give too much away, unless you know you, you want to. You know, um, I don't. I wasn't to give
3: much away. Like, I was trying to give just a general synopsis of like, like who's like who the characters are in the sense uh, and their connection and yeah. what they're trying to do, because the ending of this um, little miniseries is like, it's brutal. It's chilling like it's man. on two fronts, actually, because yeah, because there's it really it, it, on two fronts, almost like I will not say three fronts, because something happens to one of the kids. Yeah, who is and, it, and and what happens in reflection to kind of what results kind of momentarily after that. Yeah, like makes what happened to him almost seem worthless. Like, what led him to that point was, like, if he had known, then maybe he would have been as obsessed, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. So, I don't know. I just, I, I thought the ending was, like, just, like, perfectly written, well-timed. Especially since, like, there are, like, like, little backup stories with each issue that slowly leads into the final issue and to, like, what happened. um, Yeah. The superpower person and it's uh, I don't know like it's it's dark but like I want to say I, I want to say dark in the sense like it's dark and gritty and like, intentionally meant to be dark it's meant to be more of like this is more like a realistic situation that given the parameters of this universe what these kids are going to is a very believable yeah. experience and what happened is a consequence of of their misunderstanding of Oh, I guess in some sense of life, of understanding what, what life, what the value of life really yeah.
1: is. Yeah. I don't think it's gritty either. Like, it, it doesn't, no. Jeff Lemire doesn't tell the story with the intention of making it gritty, but... Yeah. Like, in fact, the, yeah, there the is, is...
3: Like, for the most part, a lot of it's very brightly colored. It's...
1: it's and the character it's, designs are super cartoony. Yeah. You know? And
3: like, there's also a degree of innocence to the characters that kind of persists. Yeah up until the end, but there are moments here and there where you can see, like, when I look back and I, I see these moments where certain characters have these very like momentary flashes of like, there's clearly something wrong with them, but you yeah. don't necessarily right up front until later on. And you see like, looking back like, oh, like there really was yeah. something kind of wrong all along.
1: Yeah, no, it's totally something where I've, I'm, I'm not gonna say that like Jeff Lemire pulled like a bait and switch or something, but I do feel like he did like the inverse of what you would expect of that kind of story. So yeah, like I mentioned, like something like Goonies where you know this group this this young group of uh this young gang of kids that are like plucky underdogs come out on the other side being closer than ever. Like I'd I'd even say that by the end of this story you get kind of the opposite where whatever whatever the result of the story was, they're bound by the dark secret of it when it's all over, you know? Yeah,
3: yeah. Like, I I would argue that there are two characters who are closer than they were at the beginning. But, mm. like you said, they're kind of like in, now intimately bound by what happened. But in in a kind of, you could almost say, it leaves off like in a frictional sense. Like you like they yeah. uh, like they don't want to be reminded by this and they, like you can almost feel like the next day they're not
1: going to be, be friends reaction. after this <laughs> they'd want to be this... as
3: far apart from each other as possible
1: yeah they're not going to be friends after this and if if I was to project outward into time I'm pretty sure that they're going to end that at least a few of them are going to be messed up adults
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true they'll probably yeah. they'll probably be the ones slapping people around yeah. <laughs> But yeah hey, no, like, no. I, I, let's I not like, judge he, that behavior <laughs> it does it does feel a lot like um Jeff Lemire um subverted expectations with this young group of you know pre teens or teens who are going on this adventure and the they come out on the other end, but how they come out is not what you'd expect, even from what we're saying, you can't expect what we're trying to imply you should expect
1: yeah
0: yeah. Basically, you just have to read Plutona.
3: You just have to read it, and yeah. it's only five issues. Also, the covers are are phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and it's not dense at all. It's like no. Jeff Lemire is one of those writers who's very. Uh, I'm gonna steal something from Drew, but he's very like economical with his with his uh, dialogue and his text. So, you know, he's uh, it's great stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, I think
0: it, uh, Emmy Lennox was the artist and they did a really good job together. It's like her her art really fit the tone of his story because I feel Jordy like Belair,
3: then the colorist.
0: Yeah, was Jordi Belair colorist? She, she's always like a great colorist too, she's like she's one of the best.
3: I just don't know that on the issue, it's Jeff Lemire, then Emmy Lennox, then Jordi Belair on the title.
0: Yeah, Emmy Lennox was the artist. Um, so the thing that that's stands out to me with with Plutona it's been a while since I've read it so the the plot isn't as fresh in my mind but it does that thing where uh that Jeff Lemire is so well known for where he he's able to tell these gripping uh character dramas with with this uh kind of a small town kind of feel to it you know it's like just these these kids that that uh have this small community with each other. And I was going to ask you earlier, Albert, when you were talking about those 80s movies, but I, I was like waiting for you to describe Plutona as, uh, as Black uh, Hammer meets Goonies.
4: Uh,
3: <laughs> 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 uh,
0: this is why I completely
3: avoided the phrase of meets because I did listen to your previous podcast where Albert expressed his utter like d- um, disdain for anybody who was lazy to say, well, this meets that. Well, then just yeah. explain exactly what it is. Goonies like, meets Black, Black Hammer. <laughs> Take the paragraph
1: to tell me what it's about. <laughs> like, don't don't give me a half-ass... I thought, I
0: thought uh, you wanted economical dialogue. Goonies was, meets was, Black Hammer. I
3: would <laughs> have said it's Powers um, meets Goonies or something. I don't know. Okay, but Powers
0: so, meets Goonies.
3: But I think it's also disrespectful and disservice to the creative team who made this unique story to say it's just that mighty ducks meets i would powers. i would actually
1: i would actually agree with uh Shayna's on that i think like i get it when writers do it for their own works like i well no actually i don't get it i don't want them to do it but, <laughs> <laughs> but i have even less patience when somebody else tries to describe it that way because it, it does feel like a disservice to the actual work itself it's so much more there is on, one guys. thing
3: about Plutona that I want to say that I didn't quite put together and I, I'm still blanking on ideas that if you look at the first page of the first issue and the last page of the last issue um, there's a fly that's being given focus Yeah, and like I, I, I'm trying to think of the expression was it the expression is like a fly in the wall is um, Is that like an observer like
1: yeah like, yeah. things happen well,
3: around them, but they have no control or say in like, the outcome.
1: Yeah. I was going to say that I took it as kind of, like, a pall that was kind of hanging over them, mm-hmm. right? And it feels like, especially once you get to the end of the story and, you know, things have gone wrong uh, to whatever degree that they've gone wrong. Uh, and like I said, they're they're going to be these kids are now bound by this shared secret. Um, For me, the idea of that fly is like, it just solidifies the idea that there's this thing that's going to hang over them. Even when you see it as the very last thing, you know, because what does a fly do, but just kind of hangs around like rot. Right. So I mean, maybe, maybe I'm being overly pretentious or, I think Symbolistic see, about it But See I
3: thought it was being potentially symbolistic by thinking That he's expressing that Like When you see the fly at the end Even though the characters Work flies in the wall In some sense We as a reader Can be like Okay he's saying See this fly Things are yeah. happening So all the fly has no control over See the fly at the end What happened to these kids Is like It's almost like, it's almost like He's saying This is inevitable And some yeah. of them are like, It doesn't matter what They have trying to do At some point This would have happened
4: mm-hmm.
3: But again I I'm I feel like I'm reading into this because the fly only appears as far as I can tell on the first page of the first issue, and the last page of the last issue. And yeah. I'm sure he meant something by it. And I'd much rather just ask him and know what he intended than try to presume. No,
1: totally. That's, that's one of those elements that, you know, that feels like it's for the academic reader, right? Like, yeah. if, if Jeff Lemire ever had, you know, gave us a symposium or a lecture on it, that's one of those things that, uh, or or if you ever took a class on this, That that's definitely one of those elements to, that you would deconstruct just for uh, conversation.
3: <laughs> yeah, or maybe the fly is a symbol of fragility, right? You see the first page, like, this superhero is dead. and the last page, there's a problem of something else. Like, the fragility of, of humankind, <laughs> be it superpowered or not.
1: Well, but that was the other thing I was going to add, was, like, so a, a large part of their... A large crux of the story is the fact that it revolves around these kids finding this this dead superhero, right? Yeah. And again, like whatever their whatever the kernel of the seed of their adventure is is already tainted. It's already surrounded by, you know, them trying to cover up this dead superhero, right? Oh, like regardless of whether like, it's a superhero, kind of like, it's a, kind it's a like flies will it's all a life.
3: around a car- dead carcass
1: exactly exactly
3: right there's like a, deadness, so like a deadness to the characters also deadness to their characters at the end of the story like their souls have somehow yeah. like experienced something that they can't get back from
1: yeah so it's this idea that it's just whatever this dark thing is it's haunting them yeah
3: okay so, so we have like three or four different interpretations i like that
0: yeah yeah for something that's only five issues it's got a surprising amount of depth
3: yeah yeah
0: you gotta love it's up there in terms
1: of my favorite jeff lemire works yeah yeah
0: Yeah, me too i should reread
3: it he also he also did the other like sci-fi one what's why am i blanking on it sentient sentient that Mm -hmm. that was also like a really good one and also Mm -hmm. revolves around kids
0: yeah he does a really good job writing kids uh i mean they're not necessarily kids stories in the sense Mm -hmm. that i want little kids to read these comics because they're they're not really for kids but right. mm-hmm. when he writes uh children as characters in his stories he always manages to make them believable mm-hmm. and they yeah. still they still come across as as kids but they're they're not the kind of kids that mm-hmm. are just uh they're I feel like a lot of times in fiction, when you have kids, they're just kind of like one-dimensional kids, right? Like yeah. the stereotypical yeah. kids that don't really <clears throat> contribute much more than like one or two traits. But he's able to give these kids uh, enough character that they feel like real people.
3: Yeah. And a like, like how you could he almost... puts them in situations where they still – interact with what's happening as kids like the reactions of mm-hmm. rebellious kids mm-hmm. but also the fact that as kids they are, they can persevere they're tenacious they, they they are survivors and they will do what they need to do to kind of take on whatever responsibility they need to and it won't be perfect but you know it's
0: yeah yeah it's it's almost like these are the kind of kids that albert might not slap
1: <laughs> sure <laughs> well <laughs> i was i was gonna say like if i was to take it one step further it's it almost feels like jeff lemire writes a lot of stories about sad kids you know like when you say that they're more than these one-dimensional kid characters you're absolutely right because like so many of his kid characters in other stories they've been through a lot of stuff yeah like i now that i think about it i'm hard-pressed to think of a kid in one of his uh, a kid character in one of his stories that is anything like that one dimensional happy go lucky, like
0: stereotypical kid, right? Yeah, I mean, um, just think about Gus from Sweet Tooth. I mean, yeah. that, that's a kid that's been through a lot. I don't think I read Sweet Tooth. Yeah. You got to check that Sweet
1: out. Tooth Sweet Tooth is great.
3: After- I, I want to. I, I do want to contend the point. It. I don't think Jeff Lemire, unless he writes about sad kids, because look at Sentient. It opens up, everything's fine, the kids are happy, but they go through experience that is disheartening and challenging. Traumatic, like, yeah. And traumatic, but at the end of Sentient, they, they do recover of happiness. Like, they are in a safe place, you know, they're back in the community. Yeah, like, I go- mean,
0: as long as you don't mind focusing on the fact that, you know, their par- parents have all been slaughtered, they're pretty, they're in a good place. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, like, they
4: could
3: have been in a worse place, right? They could have been left as downbeaten and, like, and utterly, like, depressed.
0: <laughs> for kids whose parents were slaughtered, they're they're in a pretty they good mood. They were
3: remarkably happy. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, Maybe all,
3: disturbingly so. <laughs> but to be fair, what we get the pressure of is by the time they're into the planet, right, they've had a long time since the slaughtering of the parents to come to terms with the reality. And, like, kind of move on with life and realize that life is is like despite the tragedy that has happened, they have to live their life and they have to make what they can of it. So that yeah. kind of had a positive tone of like, yes, it was it was horrific what happened to their parents, but they found a way to Take control get of over it. And and and, and then, <laughs> yeah, just get over it.
0: Get, get over it. Get over <laughs> it, old <you laughs> kid. <laughs> Let me slap some sense into you so you can toughen oh, up. There's the always be tragedy.
1: We're going to sit there and wham, cry about all day long. Shit it of tears are waged of water. Right. Big a salt tablet.
3: But but I will say Plutono is <laughs> starkly different because platona does end with them being like, 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 it's just like, there is no happiness in Platonia, like there. Yeah,
1: like I don't even know if they were sad as much as they were just traumatized
3: by the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> mm. that's true. Actually, that's a fair point. Like, like it's, it's yeah. It, like you look at the, like you look at the, the their faces. It's more like it wasn't like, sadness. Like, it, it was th- just, th- they, th- was th- just th- they were th- just th- like, like messed up. I was gonna say like there's a blankness, like this, like a sense yeah. of like removal of of like what has just happened to us. We can't yet process yeah. this. It would be pretty
0: interesting to do a kind of comparative analysis of all of Lemire's comics yeah. to, to examine how yeah. he works the themes of trauma and distress and despondency, yeah. especially with his younger characters. Drew, that should be your yeah. PhD thesis. Jump into a school PhD pro- program and then just save that thesis. And
1: then, <laughs> all right, here you you're <laughs> Done. And another example is Descender. like Like the main kid in that, I forget his name, but and he's a robot, but he grew up with a family, and that was a big part of the story. Is just him trying to get back to a state where he can be with his family again. Well, oh, mm-hmm. that sounds like
3: AI. By it, a it's
0: word. it's it's AI meet Superman. <laughs> shut up, Drew!
1: Just <laughs> shut up, just shut up, Drew!
0: Albert, shut right up, now, do you feel like stopping, Drew?
1: <laughs> I'm going to break this tablet. <laughs> that
2: was perfect. The timing in the description just so on point. Perfect. It's
0: nothing like a, I mean Superman. <laughs> I just couldn't think of another comic.
1: <laughs> but I will say this. Um, me and Drew have like had this conversation before about like some of the stra- stories that resonate with us. And one of the things that he brought to my attention was that uh yeah, apparently I'm very drawn to story about like traumatized kids or kids having to, you know, overcome resi- uh adversity and you know, showing their resiliency. And I think, yeah, like I've I just listening to you, Sheenus, talk about uh Plutona just kind of solidified that uh that realization for me.
0: You gotta read like, a sentient Albert, you're gonna enjoy that one.
1: Yeah, it's I have the digital copies. I I definitely intend to check it out. Like I think in my perfect dream world, I would want Jeff Lemire to do a power pack story. Oh, that be, would be amazing. I would be I would be super about that if he ever did a
0: power pack story. Yeah. That would be fun.
2: Yeah. Man, so if someone if someone is just gonna get into or get started with Jeff Lemire, because I'm hearing some really good things and I just don't think that I've read enough or a lot of his stuff yet, or definitely not as much as I want to, but if someone's going to get into it, then uh, what's a good starting point? I'd start with Essex County.
1: Um, It doesn't have superheroes, but you know, it's just, it's one of his earliest works. Uh, I think his earliest, like his very first work was a, a, a comic called Lost Dogs, but Essex County for me is like the thing that caught my attention. And it's just about uh it's just about small town living like just these wounded characters living up in small town canada and it's i guess it's a not an anthology but it's three different stories that are loosely con- i don't even remember if they're loosely connected but it's just about you know a young boy who loses his mom and moves in with his uncle uh and you know him adjusting to this new life uh while meeting characters in in this town that uh he's 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 now living to in this new life and i'm trying to describe it without giving too much away but you know it's definitely about a young boy dealing with the tragedy of loss and uh trying to put his life back together in the in the aftermath of it, you know, and uh, I forget what the other two stories were. Uh, one of them was about a young man who I, I want to say he was a hockey player, and just it's a story that takes place um, years after the fact, where he's become much older, and you know he's lived his life uh, and you learn about him as a young man playing hockey and all the things that happened to him over the course of his life and what led him to becoming the person that he is today. And unfortunately, you know, it involves a lot of heartache and pain uh, and even distance, uh, you know, removing people that he once cared about from his life. And it's just, yeah, it's just the story of how, how life will do that to you you know like just the not pain of loss but just the circumstances that lead to you making decisions that 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 just happen in life right i mean like i, I think often a lot of us tend to think about our lives and think what if i had done this differently or what i ha- or what if i had done that differently and uh i do feel like that story perfectly captures just the culmination of those that decision making and just um what leads a man to to making those wrong decisions in his life and whether you can redeem yourself i guess
2: yeah Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, I'm hearing, I was also hearing a lot of the stuff you guys were saying about kids, and I I really, really appreciate that because I think they're, well, I've seen in the past, I'll just say, like, just from personal experience, there's kind of a tendency of adults to kind of, like, write kids off. Like, if I had a dollar for every time I was a kid and something truly messed up happened and, you know, I'm just like, oh, hey, I'm dealing with something right now, and people are just like, oh, well, you're just a kid oh, you guys are just kids. It's like, well, we're human. Like people yeah. people deal with stuff. And yeah. honestly, I, especially like younger people, kids, teenagers, whatever, they do process things and they do see things and feel things on a level that I think adults kind of sometimes assume that they don't. I, I don't know why yeah. that assumption takes place, but it's just like, there's a lot more going on in there than, than people give them credit for. And a lot of times yeah. when kids get into really bad situations, um, some of it is because no one's listening to them. There's that tendency to sort of write them off. And then, you know, there's nowhere to go because that's the point where you need an adult, but like nobody is, is watching you or nobody's listening to you, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I still got to read my copy of Essex County. I picked it up on sale like years ago, but I haven't gotten around to it. I I, I really need to get to it, man. Yeah. yeah. We, Jeff Lemire is a great writer. We've talked about some of his other stuff in our other episodes too. And I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into more of his stuff in future episodes, but yeah, Plutona is a, another easy place to start. Uh, cause totally. It's, it's not very long. Uh Sentient was another one. And I think you'll like Sentient too, Zach, because it, it's, a, it's a science fiction story. So there's a lot of cool, uh, you know, machinery and things of that nature. That's a story about, it's not really, we kind of spoiled it, but not really, because early on in the story, I mean, the whole premise of the story is uh, this ship uh, traveling in space, uh, but all the, all the parents get killed early on in the story. So the the story is about all of the surviving kids uh, trying to make their way to their destination. And the reason it's called sentient is because it's up to the ships on board AI to guide them to safety. But it's just an AI, you know, (laughs) and it wasn't it wasn't designed to raise children because it was dependent on these adults to kind of, you know, it doesn't understand be love. Yeah. It doesn't understand how to love these kids.
1: <laughs> Why are we laughing at the idea of kids not, not being loved?
2: <laughs> Albert, Albert, if this actually was a comic book, you would be a super villain. You're aware of that, right? You <laughs> would be an what? anti-hero.
1: <laughs> I would be the plucky neighbor.
0: <laughs> well it's about time to wrap things up because i know uh you guys need to get going but it was it was always great as always it's it's great to have you on the show and next time uh Shayness, you and zach are able uh to be on um we got to continue our recommendation series at some point
3: yeah it, it may be a while for me just because i got a lot of work going on and in fact, so much work that during part of this discussion, I was, I finished one of my homework problems. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice, man. <laughs> nice. You're good at math. And I, I got to use all the time I can. If I and can't yeah. contribute to comic books, I'll
2: contribute to my
3: homework.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, were were you about you, to say son. something,
2: Zach? Yeah, I was just going to say good for you, man. Thank um you. <laughs> And then at Drew, yeah, man, always always a pleasure. Always great to hang out with you guys. Um, you know, it's a shame we're all busy, so it couldn't happen more, but it's good when it can happen. Absolutely. Yeah, It's good to have you guys on the podcast again. Yeah,
3: For no, sure. it's good to finally catch up. It's been, I think, maybe six months since we all, like, did a podcast or anything like that together, so it's nice. Yeah, yeah all
2: four yeah, of us. It doesn't even seem like that long.
3: They're... they're, they're I, I might have some free time come spring break but it probably won't there's a very likelihood that i won't be able to do this again until like summertime all right i yeah, mean well let us you know,
1: know door is always open yeah,
3: yeah. Unless, you, unless you're down to like some sort of shorter podcast thing i could probably squeeze in an hour and a half somewhere
1: yeah we could do yeah. that could i do mean that. we can talk about that offline We're we're still sure. live that's
3: okay. Drew's gonna edit it anyway. <laughs>
0: Am I? Am I gonna edit it? Maybe I'm so lazy. I'm just gonna leave this at the tail end guys, of our episode. Guys, so we're going live.
3: We're tell. live, guys. it's, it's yeah. fine. People just have some insight into our personal lives and our inability to schedule things. And <laughs> <laughs> we're incompetent at living. Help us. We're just
1: gonna. We're just gonna devolve into shop talk right on the podcast. <laughs>
3: All right.
2: Nothing like real-time planning. <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right, guys. It's, it's It was nice hanging out for a little bit. Um, thanks for the recommendations. Yeah. This is Between
0: the yeah. Gutters signing out. Peace out, everybody. Bye, guys. Yeah, see ya. See ya.